Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. We're in a series called Citizens, and we're looking at a a sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5. The whole sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount, but in the beginning of that, he had eight statements that really define what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what we would call someone who is a Christian. As we work through each of these statements, we're asking this question, and it's very basic, but it's something that's good to be reminded of regularly. And that's this, as Jesus shares one of these statements, we just ask this question, is it true about me? Is this a trait about my heart? Is this something that I actually live out in community and in my world? Now, there are gonna be times when our time here on the weekends where maybe you're learning something new, maybe we're discovering something uh, that you've never heard before in God's word. But there are also those times when you just need to be reminded about something that's true. Uh, I, I oftentimes, when I go to a wedding, when I perform a wedding, it reminds me about these commitments I've made to my wife. It's not something I didn't already know, but it just becomes sweeter as I am reminded of these truths. And what I'm going to talk about here tonight, I don't think you'll say, man, I've never heard that before. But my prayer is this, that the gap between our knowledge and our actions will somehow shrink as we bring it back to mind. I would argue that the best dessert to have ever been created is Dole Whip. Dole Whip is amazing. Dole Whip is pineapple juice, which is my favorite. Pineapples is amazing. I will eat it until my mouth goes raw. Pineapples meets ice cream. It's soft serve made out of pineapple juice, and it is absolutely the best thing I've ever tasted. The first time I actually discovered this was when my family was visiting uh, Walt Disney World. Outside of Pirates of the Caribbean, there's a little ice cream hut, and we bought this, and I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever had in my entire life. The problem was I could only get it outside Pirates of the Caribbean at the Magic Kingdom and Disney World. And so when I went, I would buy like three of them, right? I would eat them all. If I only had $5, I can guarantee you I would not share that with my children. Those little ingrates do not appreciate fine things like Dole Whip. But you know what we discovered one time when we visited Ocean City, Maryland? That there's actually a little ice cream stand there that has Dole Whip there. So we go once a year for like a pastor's retreat there, and I will shape my whole trip around making sure we get to this little, what was it called? Was it Dumpster's? Was that it? Dumpster's Dairyland on the, like going, before you even get onto the little island, it's, it's there on the right. And, and I will shape my whole trip around getting there. Um, and again, I will buy two or three of them just because they're that amazing to me. Now, whether we're talking about food, whether we're talking about emotions or experiences, this is, this is what we can say. We can say that our appetites control our actions. Our appetites control our actions. And in fact, our actions are actually really predictable because all you need to know is what someone is passionate about, what they desire, what they long for, and it's really not hard to figure out how they're gonna spend their money how they're gonna spend their energy, how they're gonna spend their time. It's really predictable. 
You know, if I told you, if you told me that you're, you're literally hungry for food, I know what your action is going to be. You're gonna go out and you're gonna hunt for food. If you have an appetite to get in shape, I know that your actions are gonna result in you like buying the app and you like starting the exercise routine and you changing your dieting patterns. If you have an appetite to get good at golf or guitar, to become a better parent, maybe, maybe to get a particular kind of job or to switch over to a new kind of field, it's always gonna yield particular actions and drive a certain type of behavior. And I'm just going to warn you that probably this is going to make you, you hungry because we're going to be talking about food a lot here this weekend. So just fair warning. So like if you have a hankering for Mexican food, it's going to shape your actions. It's going to be something that drives you. If you can find out what someone's appetites are, you can predict what someone is going to do, where they're going to go because appetites always yield an action. But this is probably where we need to give a little bit of a warning. As we talk about appetites, and, then, and we're going to talk about what Jesus says in just a moment, but I want to give a warning, and it's really not a Christian thing. It's just like a, a human being thing. It's helpful to remember that when we talk about our, our appetites leading to actions, that we need to be very careful about the kind of appetites we allow to develop in our lives. We need to be very careful about that because our appetites are always going to yield actions, so we better be careful what kind of appetites we choose to develop. Because if you cultivate the kind of appetite that means that you're always going to end every meal with sweets, you're going to have to develop an appetite for getting to the gym, right? That that has to come next. Whatever appetite you create, it's going to need to be fed, and it's going to need to be fed by your money, by your time, by your energy, by your priorities. So if you cultivate an appetite to have a relationship with someone from the opposite sex, be careful because you're going to need to feed that, and it might actually lead you to do something that you actually don't want to do and to become the kind of person that you don't want to become. So if you feed that appetite to to succeed at all costs, be careful. You might end up plowing over people that you love to get to that desired goal. Because what your mom and your dad told you is true, you become what you eat. You become what you chase. So be careful the kind of appetites that you allow to be cultivated because your actions are predictable They're based on appetites and they lead to actions. So be careful because we might end up feeding the wrong kind of thing. Now Jesus shows up and he tells us this characteristic, this trait about someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. And it's that this is a person who has stimulated and cultivated an appetite for something that deeply satisfies their soul that, that doesn't just satisfy their hunger or a pastime or a hobby, but satisfies the deepest longings, not just of their physical hunger, but the deepest longings of their soul. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 6. He said, blessed, happy, fortunate are those who hunger and they thirst for righteousness, for they 
will be satisfied. They will be filled. Blessed are those who have this deep craving, this longing, this pursuit, this want for righteousness because they're going to be satisfied, Jesus says. Now, as he communicated this, just put yourself in his shoes. He's talking to some, some shepherds and some some country folk out in the countryside. These are people who are well acquainted with hunger. In fact, poverty was rampant, so they would have probably been hungry when they heard Jesus say this. So Jesus is saying, hey, this thing that you experience internally, this common experience for you, the same way that you long for that food, you need to long for the righteousness of God. Think about what it means when you say you're hungry. You're saying that there's something in your life and you lack it and you want more of it in your life. You are uncomfortable, you're discontented with what you're experiencing and so you experience then this deep craving for that thing. Now when my wife and I were first married, I have a vivid memory of learning to live in an understanding way with another human being And it was late one night, we're in school, we don't have two pennies to rub together, but I remember her just saying, it's 10 o'clock. She wasn't pregnant at the time either. She's like, I need chicken. I need chicken and I need it right now. And I just remember her opening the Yellow Pages. Now, Yellow Pages, young people, um, (laughs) was a book of really thin pages and they told you all the companies and the businesses in the area. Like, we look up on our phone now, you had to read a book. And so I just remember Jen on the edge of the bed, in tears, going, I just need chicken. Where is chicken? We need chicken. I think we didn't, I don't even know if we found you chicken at that point in time. But she had this, this feeling. There's something in my life that I need to be there, and it's not there, and I'm discontented, and I'm uncomfortable until I find it. When I was in high school, Um, our church camp, Camp Conquest. We've had some students that have gone there. Uh, They had a program for high school boys called Trail Explorers where we would hike 50 to 60 miles in a week and and the leader would go ahead of us and kind of plot the path and would say, hey, you're gonna get food here and you're gonna get water there. And so we went out hiking. One day we were hiking along this mountain ridge 90 plus degrees outside, 30 of us boys. We had the water that we had in our packs and that was it. And as we walked, the the, the leader said, hey, when I was here last time, there were these streams that we could find and we could refill ourselves with water. One by one, we all consumed all the water that we had. And the longer we hiked, we're saying, it's just gonna be the next next ridge. We're gonna find water. Next ridge, we're gonna find water. All the while, we're we're up on 2,000 feet above this beautiful river below us. And we're just like dying. We're dying inside. We're all so thirsty. And the day kept getting longer. And we're realizing that this is going to get serious quick if we don't get some water somehow. And this was before cell phones. And even if there were cell phones, there wasn't towers around where we were at. And so what we had to do was we said, well, we need to do anything that we can right now to get water. That's the most important thing for us. We're going to have to leave our path We're gonna have to make our way down the mountain to get to this water. And so what we did is we found where these power lines kind of cut through the mountains and there was a path that we could walk all the way down and we were able finally to to fill our stomachs, our packs with the water that we needed. This was something that we didn't just mentally accept our need for water. It wasn't just, 
rationally I understand that, it went to this place of deep craving so that we had to shift our path to get this thing that we ultimately needed in our lives. And Jesus says this. He says, the citizen of God's kingdom is someone who goes through their life and they recognize that there's something lacking inside of them. They're broken in their spirit. They're poor in spirit. They mourn for what they see in their heart, what they see around them, and they say, I need to have God's righteousness and I hunger and I thirst for it. So what is righteousness? That's a tricky word. The only time I remember growing up hearing righteous is when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would use it. So what is righteousness? Uh, Rick Warren says that righteousness is right relationship and it's right living. Those two things together, right relationship and right living. Right relationship, so how, how are we made right with God? We're poor in spirit, we recognize that I'm spiritually impoverished before God. Jesus is clear about this. He says, I am the only way to the Father. No one comes but through me. Today I was um, preparing and I received a phone call and I, I, I was waiting for a call. And so you normally don't pick up when you don't recognize the number, right? But it was from Middletown, so I picked up and lady says, hi, my name's Elaine and I'd like to invite you to this spiritual conference we're gonna have here in town and it's really great and you should come to it and it's really cool and you can find out more information at jw.org. Okay, I heard what she just said, jw.org. So I said, oh, that's it. So is this a Jehovah's Witness thing? Because that's their website, right? She goes, yeah, yeah, it is. I said, oh, man, I, I gotta tell you, we would have a vastly different view on the nature of the deity of Jesus Christ than you. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is God the Son? I believe Jesus is God's Son. Uh, that's not what I asked. Do you believe that Jesus is God himself in the flesh? And then we went back and forth, and I showed her how in John 1 it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no indefinite article in there. There's no gray in that passage. It says that Jesus is God the Son. He is actually God. And when Jesus showed up, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So she didn't stay on the phone much longer. And then I got another phone call from Elaine about 20 minutes later, and she said, what about this passage? What about that passage? And I said, look, if Jesus is not God the Son, then we, we're all schnookered. We have no hope. As a matter of fact, I would rather die than say that Jesus is not God himself because we, there's no other name under heaven by which someone can be saved. Again, she didn't have much more to say after all of that. I don't think she was planning on talking to someone who had such a passion for Jesus being who he says he is. No one comes to the Father but by me. Think about this. Think of that God was so hungry and thirsty for righteousness in your heart and my heart that he was willing to sacrifice Go off of the path, send Jesus down so that we could have righteousness in us. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, it says, God took him, Jesus of Nazareth, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's something that we get. Is that something that you've done? Have you not just, here's what I, here's what I know. I, I can ask someone, have you accepted Christ? Yeah, I've, I've logically, rationally, understood who Jesus is, 
but do you deeply crave that righteousness in your heart? Do you crave that kind of relationship? Not just intellectually, not just a rational thought, but it has to accompany with it those affections that make people yearn and crave. Jesus says, hey, when you yearn for that, when you long for that, you will be blessed and you will be satisfied. It involves right, li- right relationship, but there's another aspect to this concept of righteousness that we can't miss, and it's this idea of having right living, right living. So it's, it's, it's that when God gets a hold of us, our priorities are radically twisted around. They're radically changed, and now I want the things that God wants to be true about my heart and to be true about my community, to be true about my nation, I would look at what God wants and I would say, just as it is in your throne room, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. The righteousness that you experience in your throne room, and there's no dissension, there's no factions, there's no strife, there's no abortion, there's no murder, there's none of that stuff. I want that kind of taste of that here in my community. I want in my family. I want that between my siblings. I want that, I want that for my church. I want us to have that kind of righteousness. I want God, your agendas to be true here on this earth. It's really fascinating if you look at that, different translations will take that word righteousness and they may even use the word justice for it, the word justice. So the idea that it's, it's not just my relationship with God, but it's how God would define equality, how God would define fairness, how God would define justice on this earth as well. Listen, many times us as evangelical church people, all day long we'll say we need to tell someone about Jesus and we'll care about proclaiming the gospel to them. But when it comes to actually demonstrating it to them and demonstrating what fairness and justice actually is, we'll fail at that level. It's not a political thing. Listen, it's not a political thing. It's a God thing. You want to know how I know that? Because the nation of Israel was judged in the Old Testament because they didn't operate with the justice of God. It's not a social justice kind of like political thing. They, they, they would oppress the poor. They would have infanticide take place. Their leaders would, would subjugate those underneath of them, would take advantage of them. There was all sorts of injustices happening. And for that reason, God would say, this is so perverted, so twisted, he actually sent them away, had them carried off to the land of Babylon. God cares deeply about those things. So we would look at then in our world and we would say these things that we see, it breaks my heart, it causes me to have a craving for something different. So I would look and I would say, hey, these babies who cannot defend themselves, it pricks my heart, it makes me crave for something different than, than just to have abortion take place. When, when young girls, when women are, are sold and bought into sex uh, trafficking, that should break our heart. When we see the, uh, the oppressed and the marginalized because of their skin color, when that happens, it should make us go, that's not right. I, I crave for something different than that. I yearn for it. That kind of thing should make a citizen of the kingdom of heaven mourn for it, lament over it, should cause them to hunger and thirst for God. Would your kingdom come and it, would it be done here just like it is in heaven? 
Jesus says that when we have that kind of attitude, when, God, I, I, will, I will deviate my plan so that I can be right with you so that we can experience your justice here on this earth, he would say this. He would say when we experience that, congratulate them because they've figured something out. They've cracked the code. They've got the life hack down. They've learned that I'm not gonna be satisfied with lesser things they've learned that nothing satisfies us like God's righteousness. Nothing satisfies us like God's righteousness. This is how the psalmist said it. He said, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. I love this verse. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. Listen to the words he uses. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. You hunger for it. And when we turn to God for it, Jesus says, you're going to be satisfied like you've had five ice cream cones of Dole Whip, like you found the chicken you were finally going for, that thing you just crave and you will not rest until you had it. Jesus says, it will be as if you have the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth, my mouth will praise you. Blessed is the person who realizes that because they know that nothing is going to satisfy in this world like that. Nothing is going to satisfy. So Jesus says, this is this way. It's a way to live. This is what's true of a citizen. And when you, when you pursue that, when you crave it, when you're broken over your sin, when you mourn over that, when it starts to affect your relationships and you say, I want more of God's justice on this earth, when you do that, it's gonna overflow in you. The, uh, the ancient Hebrews, they had a word for that and it meant this, it meant to be saturated to be saturated in it. These things you long for, it's, it's not just gonna be a drop in a cup, the cup is gonna be full and overflowing. And it guides and it directs your heart. You orient yourself around the things of, of God. So all of a sudden, man, I want, I want God's will to be true for my marriage, so I want my marriage to be pure. I want it to be honoring to God, and when I do that, guess what? That's gonna lead to a blessed life. I want my kids to learn how to follow after Jesus, to put others first. When I do that, when I say, God, your kingdom be true in my family, that's going to lead to an overflowing, a saturated kind of life. I want my life from the little things to the big things, the little things like how I drive on the highway and, and impatient with people to the big things, like how I treat someone that's nothing like me. I want them to be God-honoring, so I yearn for that, I pursue it. It's gonna guide me, it's gonna direct me because I know that nothing will satisfy me like a life saturated with the righteousness of God. And, and right about now, you're saying, okay, I would expect a, a preacher to say all of those things. You're not telling me anything I've never heard before but maybe, just maybe, you're here and you're saying, no, that's great. I would love to have that kind of overflowing, saturated kind of existence. 
But here's the thing. More often than not, I just don't find myself hungering and thirsting for it. I mean, I read it on the page and I say, that sounds like a good, good thing, but truth is, I just get distracted. I get distracted by the grind. I get distracted by what's on Netflix. I get distracted by life. How do I actually turn up that kind of hunger in me? And I want to give you four ways that you can do that. And again, nothing I'm going to tell you is going to make you go gasp. Even if you're a non-believer, what I'm saying is probably going to make sense to you. But I'm praying that this gap between what we know and what we practice, what I know and what I practice, will begin to shrink. So what does it look like to actively cultivate hunger and thirst inside us? Four things. The first is this, that you would actively engage in God's word. Not passively, right? Not like reading a blog or swiping through Facebook. That's all passive. But actively stopping and saying, I want to get everything I can out of this. George Mueller, George Mueller was a, a really impactful guy who ran some orphanages and kind of the stories of faith that were just unbelievable. He's got a great biography. This is what he says. He says, the first thing I did after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his precious word was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching as it were into every verse to get blessing out of it not for the sake of public ministry of the word, not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my soul. You hear that language again? Food for my soul. Now, what is food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. And here, not the simple reading of the word of God so that it just passes over our minds just like water running through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it in our hearts. I, I, I've, I've come alongside of, I've, I've done life with so many people that have said, I don't know how to do that. And they feel like I need to sit down and they need to read like five chapters in the book of Romans and, and chart it all out or do something crazy like that. Look, you sit down with God's word and you feast on it. You don't read it, you feast on it. And sometimes it might be a phrase that pops out. Sometimes it it might be a word, like you're just sitting there and he just speaks to you the word steadfast. It comes off the page and you start to feast on that. God, I have not been steadfast. I have been easily blown by the wind. I want that desperately for my life. I don't want to be thrown to the wind the moment that person says that thing or I see him in the grocery store. Teach me to be steadfast. God, I want to feast on that. See, it's not obligation It's making it make sense to your heart. Here's what happens. When you read the word of God, the Holy Spirit will illuminate it in your hearts. He makes it come to life inside you. And here's what happens. We begin to see who God is. We begin to see his character. And we don't have to guess about it. He reveals it to us. For crying out loud, don't be intuitive about it. It's not, well, I think God is this. Look, he, he showed us who he is. He steps in and he teaches us about his character. We don't have to guess about that. So we would say, God, show me who you are. Show me how you feel about me. And what we would experience is his steadfastness. Sometimes he'll speak over us something that even strikes us as funny. Like God, the fact that God never sleeps. And all of a sudden you start thinking, you know what? Every day I go to bed and I just feel like I can never get enough done and I'm exhausted. And then I'm reminded that God never sleeps and he never gets weary. And while I'm even sleeping, 
he's still working. And that means that I can trust some things to his hands and maybe I have a hard time letting that go. Or maybe we look in God's word and we see how he's patient with others and we start to realize how he can be patient with us. When, when, when we actively read the Bible, we see who God is, but we also see who we are before him. We see that in Christ, we are hard-pressed, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're more than conquerors. That in Ephesians 2, he says that we're his masterpiece, his great poem. Look, at when, when we know who God is and when we know who we are before him, we can absolutely destroy the work of the enemy. Because when he comes accusing us, when he deceives us, when we have a right view of who God is and who we are before him, we see how God cares for us and, and talks about us and interacts with us, the enemy's schemes are completely undone. His power is nullified and we begin to walk in victory. Like, like, what would it mean if all of a sudden when the accusations come to us, we just recite back Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We take that tool away from the enemy. He has no more power over us. We, we remind him, we say, I am a friend of Jesus. I am a friend of God. I can walk into his throne room at any point in time and his righteousness covers over me. He declares me as sinless before him. What about meeting the stains of the past and we think, man, I just, I wish that thing wasn't there anymore. And the enemy comes and he speaks over us. Hey, look at what a screw up you are. And you can say, you know what? Yes, I was, but that person is dead and gone because I am a new creation in Christ. You can talk bad about him because guess what? That Scott is dead. He's not even around anymore. He doesn't care. Dead people don't care what you talk about them. I am new in Christ. Where does the enemy go from there? You rob him of all of his weapons simply by knowing the heart and the mind of God. The second thing is this. The first is that we engage with God's word. We actively engage with it. Second is this, is that we obey what we already know. We obey what we already know. Here's the troubling thing. Man, I, I meet with all sorts of people and they want to experience God's power and God's blessing and they'll say, man, I just really want to know what God wants me to do in this particular area of my life. Do I choose to go here? Do I choose to go there? What do I do? And they're looking for all of this blessing from God, but they never want to obey what God has already asked them to do. They chase one spiritual high after another, but they don't walk in obedience what God has already plainly put in front of them. Like if you want to see the power of God in you and through you, this is going to sound crazy, then do what you already know. And you could even say, man, when I open God's word, there's hard stuff in there and I don't understand it all. Start with what you know. Start with what's obvious right in front of you. The experience of grace and the affection of God in the deep places is felt most frequently and consistently out of our comfort zone and into the acts of faith that line up with God's commands in our lives. Do what you already know. Obey what you already know. Here's another, this is just an aside, but sometimes I'll experience this in a small group setting where we're studying something in God's word and, and it might be, hey, be kind to the poor. 
Be generous with what you have. And sometimes in our group environments, we'll spend all of our time talking about the exceptions to that clause, looking for everything on the outside of the bell curve. Well, what if they spend that money on this? Well, what if they just feed a habit there? What if I'm enabling them? And we'll spend all of our time working ourselves out of obedience rather than looking at the plain things that are right in front of us where I need to walk in generosity with the people around me. Obey what you know how to do. And here's what happens when you start walking in obedience, it starts stimulating a hunger and thirst inside of you. It's like the moment you say, I'm going to start exercising and I'm going to start dieting properly. You find that your acne goes away, your indigestion starts to tame down, you start to have better energy and you say, this is actually, actually kind of nice. I think I want more of this in my life. You start in on that path and it begins to feed you. You obey what you already know. When you step out in that, God starts to work that in you. A couple of my children have this disorder, and it's kind of painful. Maybe you guys know about it, too. It's called the delayed disobedience disorder. The delayed obedience disorder. It's not that they're not obedient. It's just that it takes them some time to get there. Like, hey, will you take care of this thing? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. Yeah, sure, sure. You come back later. Hey, were you going to take care of that. Oh man, why don't you get off my back? Why are you always on me like that? Has anyone else experienced that with their children at any point in time? Is it just me? Right? But isn't it true that sometimes we're like that with God? God, I know I should do this thing. I know I should give like this. I know you want me to prioritize this. I know you want me to talk with my neighbor. But there's this gap between what you know and what you do. What is this but delayed obedience with God? It's us saying to God, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to it. I'm going to put my priorities first. We have to actively read the word of God. We obey what we know how to do. Third, we prioritize relationships that stir our desire for the things of God. We prioritize relationships that stir our desire for things of God. Look, you guys know this. You guys know this. The more you're around people the more they're going to influence you. When you spend time around people that are just kind of like, you know, yeah, Jesus is cool. I'll wear a shirt every once in a while, but it's when he fits into their schedule and they're kind of laissez-faire about it. They're half-hearted about the whole thing. You know that that's going to, you're going to become more and more like that. And the more you prioritize relationships in your life where people encourage you in, that, in the direction of following after God's righteousness, the more you're going to become more like that. Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, verses 24 through 25 says, let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. And look, it's easy, it's easy to look at this and say, well, that's just talking about worship services. No, it's not. It's part of it. But it's about sharing life with people that are going to stimulate your hunger and your thirst for righteousness. As a musician, here's what I know. The best way to become a better drummer is by hanging out with awesome musicians. Nothing is going to make you a better guitarist than hanging out with a bass player that can play in the pocket. Nothing's going to make you a better runner than when you run next to someone who loves it and is good at it and is going to help encourage you in your pathway. The same thing is true for us. That is why we believe so strongly in life groups because it's another environment where we can do life with each other. And so I want to ask everyone to participate in that this fall. We're opening up three or four groups are taking place and we're setting them in different places in the week so that people can participate. It's a way to be known and to know others.
in a deep and powerful way. We actively read the Word of God. We obey what we already know. We prioritize relationships that stir our hearts. And lastly, we analyze our appetites and we starve them. We analyze our appetites and we starve them because our appetites will always lead to our actions. Isaiah chapter 55 says this, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Why chase after these appetites that are ultimately not going to satisfy you? They're going to cost you your time and your money and your energy and your priorities. And you're going to get to the end of your life and you're going to say, great, I have a boat. I have three boats. Now I've got to deal with these boats before I die. What am I going to do with all this? You realize all the stuff that we labor and spend to try to collect, our kids are going to have to work to get rid of when we're gone. And the people that are laughing are the people that have had to go through that before. They've had to deal with mom's spoon collection. What am I going to do with a spoon collection? My, Grandma, I really don't need all of your porcelain dolls in my bedroom at night. They're freaking me out. Keep them. All these things we labor and we spin for. Isaiah says, why do we spend money on that? It doesn't satisfy. Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Come, give ear, come to me, listen, that you may live. Let me ask you a question. What kills your appetite for the things of God? What kills your appetite for things of God? What are those things that you run to? It might not be as silly as a spoon collection. What are those things that you run to and they scratch an itch, they numb the pain, they distract you for just a moment? Here's what I know. I know my heart is an idol factory. And I'll run to Stranger Things 4 and I'll, I'll go after that because it just distracts me for a moment. Look, we're paying, we're financing, we're putting our energy into things that will not satisfy us. And it pulls us in to take us away from the one thing that might actually starve and put to death the root of what's going on inside of us. Analyze your appetites and starve them. And stir in your heart a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness of God. We do that by actively engaging in his word, obeying what he's already asked us to do, prioritizing relationships that stir us. We're gonna analyze our appetites and you know what? We're gonna stumble along the way but we get up and we keep running on the race by God's grace. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. When I first started dating Jennifer, here's what I experienced and when we were first married. The more time I spent with her, the more time I wanted to spend with her. I would be with her and it would satisfy me and then it would stimulate a hunger to be with her even more. The more I hungered, the more I was satisfied. The more I was satisfied, the more I was hungered. 
The hunger doesn't go away, but the good thing is neither does the satisfaction. The more I hunger, the more I'm satisfied. And the more time you spend with God, the more time you obey him, the more time you spend time around his people, the more you hunger and thirst for righteousness and the more you're satisfied. The satisfaction only grows with your hunger. And that's the beauty and that's the power and that's the joy and that's the blessedness. That's why Jesus says, congratulations to those people who hunger and thirst for that. Congratulate them because they are gonna be full to the brim, overflowing. Let's pray together and as I do, the uh, Karen and Dave are gonna come up. We're gonna spend time just responding in worship. Let me pray, let me pray together and I'm just gonna pray over you with all of our eyes uh, closed, all of our heads bowed. I'm gonna pray over you a psalm that's been so meaningful to me. Just to hear, receive, let this kind of wash over you. It says, praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and listen, and forget not all his benefits, who heals all your sins, who forgives all your sins, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Listen, who satisfies your desires with good things. Oh God, what a blessed thing it is that you take those who recognize they have not, who have their hands open, hungry, saying there's a lack in my life and you fill to overflowing that deepest desire of their heart. In my study of this passage, God, I, I see and I know and I'm keenly aware and I mourn the fact that more often than not, I'm not hungering and thirsting for your righteousness. I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for my accomplishment. I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for my distractions. I'm saying I want more of me or I want more of that. God, may we walk with the hunger, the deep cravings that only you can satisfy. God, for the distracted heart, would you break through all of that? Sometimes you do that painfully, and that's, that's hard. Some of us are in the middle of that pain right now, and you've been screaming. You've been screaming to get a hold of their hearts. They're going through that court proceeding. They're going through that sickness. And you're saying, hey, don't run to security and anything else. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved, by which you'll find the thing that you're looking for. Come and cling to the person of Christ. Oh, God, how my heart is prone to wander how my heart is prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, God, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. May this be true for each of us in Christ's name, amen. Stand together, we're gonna sing a song. It says, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. He is my song because, God, you are good, you satisfy. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves. He is my song. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days.
he is my song.